Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, the show for business owners looking to acquire, scale, or exit a business. Before we get on with today's program, we just wanted to let you know that the Buy, Grow, Sell team have been working really hard to come up with more resources that add more value to your journey. This includes a range of webinars, tools, and other events, including an online summit where we get some of the industry's leading experts to come and share their insights. If you'd like to know more, go to buygrowsell.com forward slash events. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. My next guest is Radek Sali, uh, a lovely man who has got a fun, fantastic story to share with us. Radek got involved with a little group called the Swiss Wellness Group, which many Australians will be aware of selling a broad range of multivitamins and things like that. Radek started in the business, moved up fairly quickly into the CEO role and ultimately became a shareholder. Having grown that business from about $12 million in revenue, they ultimately sold it about 10 years later for over $3 billion. Uh, it's an amazing transaction. Um, what I loved about Radek's story, though, is, is that he just really genuinely talks about the ups and downs of that journey, how hard it was to actually find the right kind of buyers and negotiate a deal that, you know, how long it took and just so many of the lessons learned and having to park one's own ego through this process. You know, I just really like it. It's, it's a very raw approach. Um, and he really just shares openly about those sort of elements of his story and, and his journey. And he's now going on to, to set up a range of investment funds that are helping in uh, a lot of really good areas. This is a, re- a story I really enjoyed. I know you'll get a lot out of it too. Uh, this is Radek Sally. Radek, welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, my pleasure, mate. I've been, uh, I know we've tic-tacked on and off trying to get you on the show for a while now, so I'm glad we could finally get together and, yeah, look, really looking forward to, uh, to unpacking your story. Thank you. Yeah. Um, mate, why don't we, um, yeah, obviously I've got the benefit of having a look at your background and whatever and knowing we're going to chat a little bit today about the Swiss Wellness Group and other businesses you're involved in, but maybe you could kick off for me and just give a little bit of your background for the audience, you know, who are you, what got you into business and... You know, I guess really what led you to being involved in the Swiss Wellness Group? Sure, yeah. So uh, who I am, I'm, I'm an Aussie mongrel. Dad's a, uh, Australian with Albanian background, mum's Czech, um, and I was born in Scotland, so I've ended up with a name that, uh, you know, people have to clarify every time um, I order <laughs> coffee, uh, which is a beautiful thing. Um, and, and, and my middle name's Rudolph too, so that, that always... Um, <laughs> A smile on people's face. <laughs> that, that would have been fun in the uh, in the playground as a kid. <laughs> oh, you nailed it! The, the first roll call of every year, as they they nail the, the kind of everyone's middle name to make sure they got the right person, was always just yeah, such yeah. a. So anyway, we're bigger person for that. Um, and and so for me, my father, he's he's a professor of surgery, and um, he's still practicing full time, working harder than I've ever worked um, uh, uh, to this day. And um, in his 80s and, and loving it. But he was back in the 70s uh, talking about diet causing disease. And a, a lot of his peers would laugh at that thought. And it took 20 years for his research to be published in the British Medical Journal. 
and and so forth. And my mother's a medical scientist, um, so you know we grew up in an environment where there was a pandemic every day. Um, it, it would talk about health and the importance of health, and Dad, being a professor, would lecture on it all the time. So I was, uh, you know, and I hear about his frustrations. And I kind of thought that I'd never want to be a scientist or or a doctor because it sounds all pretty frustrating. <laughs> but I reckon I could break this this business system thing and, and kind of you know learn from a place like Village Roadshow, which I, I I did, which was fantastic. It was in movies and 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 I worked in the candy bar there and <clears throat> and worked my way up through every role, basically through um, cinema operations. Wow. And also learned to manage a lot of my friends and peers and people that were older than me and do that in a way that. Um, you know, it was, was friendly. You know, you had to be the same person yeah. outside of work and as in, inside of work. So that, that were good business principles and I call that kind of my, you know, the university I got paid to do and and then I progressed on um, and, and, you know, always had a passion for health. It, it did rub off on me a bit, all of that, those, those lectures. And, um, and, and, yeah, so it felt like it was the right time to, to, to move out of um, cinemas after 10 years of, of working in a big company that where, where you know there aren't too many organisations that <clears throat> that are that size that own the the brand IP in this country. It's always a subsidiary of a another business or something like that. Um, you know, Carlton United Breweries is another one, but the, you know of size and scale that's gone global, and and so it was a wonderful learning ground and and um, prepared me for Swiss, which did become a global business over time. Yeah, nice, nice. It, I always find it um, really interesting the the differences in approaches between service based products, um, you know, so service based businesses versus product based businesses, and the different mindsets. I mean, I, I think having coming out of Roadshow, do do you think some of that understanding that business model and how to deliver a service are they skills that were transferable? Did you find? Yeah. I- Interestingly, I founded three service businesses, exited one, um, and and I've had a number of uh, product businesses that, you know, obviously Swiss was a product business but came from a service background um, at, at Village. So, look, there, there's some interfaces, and for me the, the kind of constant is is treating everyone equal, um, which has now become a kind of a, a, a conscious business philosophy that you know your, your suppliers are as important as your customers and it's not just about profits it's about the people that work with you as well and so you have you, you have to know that in a service business and it's kind of it's quite it seems quite strange when you, you you think about a product business and just being profit focused coming from that service yeah. background but a lot of businesses are still transitioning from that phase to that so i think it held me in really good stead to to have that kind of fundamental uh, focus on service first um, and then the rest following. Yeah, that's cool. So so when did you start, like what year was it that you started with the Swiss Wellness Group and what, what how did you get involved with that company? So it's 2005 and, and you know, after being being at um, a village for 10 years, it, it, it felt like the right time to, to move out of um cinemas um we were starting to close cinemas dvds were becoming to be a threat threat and home cinema uh was coming to bed gee they've got a lot more to face at the moment but um, (laughs) the the business trucked on and and you know gold class was a big success but you know that i also had a young ceo um who who had done really well but it kind of the growth kind of found him out and he would have been 30 
Um, and so they weren't going to go for another young CEO in that organisation. So it became clear to me at the ripe old age of 26, I needed to start looking outside of, of Village. So by 27, the right opportunity come forward. It was Swiss. They did approach me a couple of times before that with other roles at other times of their growth. Um, but, but the business probably wasn't large enough for what I was looking for and, and um, you know, I probably wasn't ready to, to, to make the transition then. And, and so, yeah, as, as the universe does, it, it delivered at the right time and, and Swiss was doing about $12 million in revenue, um, had about 30-odd people. So it was, it was akin to a, a medium-sized cinema and, and I was running a number of cinemas um, by then. And so it felt like a really good transition to, to kind of slot in. And, and there's this opportunity to grow into being CEO. So I started as an operations manager, quickly became general manager, and then soon after that, CEO. Yeah, nice. How much do you think experience plays? Like you mentioned that, you know, it was like a medium-sized cinema and you'd run multiple cinemas. How, how much does that kind of experience, as in you've played at a certain level with a certain sort of a, amount of numbers and all the rest of it, how, how important is that type of experience, do you think, for people stepping into either their own business or, or a new venture? Yeah, I think it was really important for Swiss to have someone that had the insight as to how to grow a business because the the, the shareholders and, and, and the management had kind of got it to a point and that, you know, for me, that first 10 million is the hardest 10 million to, to create. Um, and, and they've done that hard work and they created this wonderful culture philosophy that I kind of grew with and, and kind of extrapolated on and became a kind of super powerful why we were successful at Swiss. Um, but going back to, you know, the requirement of the business, for it to grow, it needed to get out of that founder mentality where the founder had to be there for every decision. And we had a big group of implementers, but no one was really remit for, uh, you know, an ability to make decisions around this kind of core <clears throat> core grouping of if it's you know, X amount of spend, you can make that decision up to there. And, and these are the, the things you need to think about that are rolling out our strategy and doing more of it and getting better on it. So uh, so we needed to transition beyond that for the, the organisation to grow. And because, as I was saying, it was the size of a medium-sized cinema and I'd, I was running, uh, I think, about 16 different complexes at that stage, you kind of get used to relying on a management structure with good system and process and, and them having KPIs that report back on. And then if there's a variation to that, then you, you dive into that and you find out what's going wrong. And, and, and that's foreign to a lot of founder-led businesses. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, um, you know, that structure and levels of authorities and delegations and all that stuff becomes just more and more important, right, as you, as you start to grow and you can't, you can't be across everything, right? It's, it's the fundamentals, it's the language of business and, and it's the reason why businesses, you know, go beyond a certain growth point is that, you know, that's why businesses get big because they, they do um, roll out a system that's repeatable and it becomes yeah. like a flywheel that, that gets bigger and, and, and larger um, in its influence as you get better and better at doing it. Yeah, for sure. Um, j- just for those who aren't familiar with the uh, Swiss Wellness Group, what, what sort of broadly did they actually offer? What's, what products and services? Well, we, we had a men's and women's multivitamin at the time I joined and we had a, a number of other products that were in a similar space but under different brands and, and that was done to kind of hedge the reliance on one brand. But over time, I quickly saw that it, it was probably inefficient 
Um, and and we we needed to invest in our core business and be really good at that. And that was the multivitamin. Um, and then that 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 business, you know, we 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 had these other brands uh, that were selling supplements, but for uh, specific conditions uh, rather than an all round um, solution. And so we slowly brought them in under the the Swiss brand, and that made us more effective, more efficient, and and got a much better return for our, our marketing spend. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's um, it's almost an analogy just for general for for business itself. You know, are, are you a business that does a kind of general multivitamin, or do you niche down and try to solve specific problems? I mean, um, do, do you have a view on that sort of thing? And and what is you know typically a better approach for businesses to think about? Well, I can tell you, it took us years of strategic conversation to get to that point that it was the right call to do that. Um, and, and I think the, the, the thing we did best was unpack failure and kind of understand why, didn't, why things didn't go as well as we'd planned. And, and that would quickly reinforce that we needed to, to just strengthen our core and be better at that, but also be, have real recognition around the strength of the multivitamin and making sure that people that if they chose our multivitamin, they wouldn't then buy the uh, product, say, for a joint condition and then replace the multivitamin. They w- would be adding on the sale. So we had a, our multivitamins were, were called Ultivite and then we called all of the, the new products that came in for specific conditions like sleep or joint or or, or kind of um, anti-anxiety. You know, they were ulti-boost. So you needed your multivitamin and then you would boost it to service a chronic condition that you, you might be facing or or something you'd like to, to deal with as a, a challenge that you're dealing with every day. So Yeah, that's quite clever. Quite clever. It's it's one of the things I see a lot of smaller businesses, a lesson they could a lot of small businesses could learn. Um, you know, introducing new products and services. How do you tie it back to your core, the brand that people have bought into originally? How do you align it? You know, people look for, for familiarity, right? When they're when they're purchasing and fundamentally no, like trust relates to products as well. You, you've got to have an authentic story that you you can tell on the connection, and um, and then that become that can become your real point of difference for who you're competing with as well. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, so you started there in 2005. Um, how, how long were you with the group and until it ultimately sold? So, yeah, so we, we sold the business. Well, the, the last tranche of sale happened in 2016, the first tranche 2015. Um, okay. that, that was 16 months afterwards that we, we got the last tranche done. Um, and the last tranche was done for a valuation that was about 30% higher than the first one. So we did nice. very well. Um, there was a good momentum in the business and uh, and that, that looked after everything. The, the, the actual put wasn't... Um, set to happen for three years, but we managed to convince the the people that had bought us that they wouldn't be able to afford us uh, in three years. If they waited that long, so it was a good result. So, so give, give us a sense of the journey. Then you, you started in two thousand and five. It was doing about twelve million in revenue. What did it look like by the time you started um, having exit discussions? Uh, look, the exit discussions happened five years before that. Started so it was a long yeah. process, to get us there. <laughs> and many times you know we thought we'd we'd got to you know climbing Everest and and we we're going to get a deal done and it would 
you know, things would change and momentum would shift and, and all of a sudden you're at the start of running a process again and, yeah, and trying yeah. to undo all of the, the thoughts and dreams that you're starting to have around how you're going to spend that money and what you're going to do with your next life. So, um, yeah, so it wasn't a short process. So I'm going to pause you there because, God, this is a this is such an important lesson for business owners out there who are thinking of that, that you know, selling is part of their exit strategy, you know, that, one, deals always take longer than you think they will take. This is absolutely inevitable. Um, I always say to our clients, allow in your mind 12 months, you know, I've, I've deals that I've done, they've gone a little bit quicker. Some of them have gone longer. But, you know, if you're not ready for at least a 12-month journey, then you, you probably will find yourself getting pretty frustrated. But um, another sort of little lesson, lesson, which I'm taking out of your words here, but um, I, I was uh, in the US recently at a range of conferences for M and A work and talking to so many different other advisors and friends and and this common theme just kept coming out is that you lose a deal three times before you get it done. <laughs> yeah. So almost three times you go, okay, this deal's probably dead now, you know, but oh, you managed to salvage it and something else happens and it twists and it turns and yeah, it's it's it can be a long and rigorous sort of journey. <laughs> it it definitely tests friendships, partnerships, um, everyone's resolve as a team and and you really need to think about strategically, you know, all of those outcomes and have the right support services around you to make sure you, you, your business is guided through without it affecting your core business. Yeah, totally. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what, what did your sort of deal team look like, both from an internal kind of employee perspective as well as external advisors? Well, it kind of changed many times as we went through, um, and and so the first incarnation was us just meeting with people and thinking we can just get this done ourselves, and and that quickly became clear that we couldn't do that. We we pointed a banker, and I suppose how I think about it is you, if you're trying to sell your house without a real estate agent, I've sold a, an apartment doing that, and that was pretty simple because someone bought an apartment below me, and um and and. I, would, I could offer the, exactly the same footprint um, for the same price and they had a couple underbidders and, and they quickly got done without an agent. But there was an agent working for that person below and so they had the relationship there to close the sale. So that's as close as I've come to selling something without an agent of size and of, of meaningful um, capital gain for me. Um, so, so yeah, so this one here, we, we, we kicked around a little bit where we met with people and then it quickly became clear, hang on, we, we, we need the profession of someone servicing us and and doing this properly and and when you talk to any person that's been through an exit they just say that the most important person is your your advisor or or banker that's acting on your behalf who you've got around you to get you through and you won't realize this until you're through the process how valuable that service is um and and so yeah we ran a process and we went with probably the more affordable option. Uh, we had some relationships with that organisation and, and they were okay. Um, uh, they weren't great, but they were okay. Um, they organised some debt for us um, it, because we became quickly clear we weren't going to get a sale. I was pretty focused on making sure that we got the same value as what Blackmores were valued at at the time, uh, which was probably, you know, our growth was projecting to hitting their numbers but we hadn't achieved them and they're a publicly listed organization as well so i was naming the price which is again something you shouldn't do let 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 the market tell you what your business is worth and then start working back from there um and so that we went all through that and there was a couple of years of fumbling around and, and the business kind of um 
it went through growth pains and, and we struggled with profitability. So we needed to look inwardly and make sure we got profitability back. Thankfully, growth maintained and, and we, we quickly became the number one player. Um, and then we ran a bit of a process around refinancing that debt and it was with the, the, the current banker that we were working with and, and another banker and the other banker just were, were very hungry to get the deal done and, and worked a whole lot harder than the, the one that we'd had working with us and they're probably tired of working with us to be honest that lost lost interest as well uh, but they were there and, and importantly there because we needed to keep the other group honest with competitive tension and and to the point where you know the 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 the, the banker that had got you know been with us for a while got pretty tired with me and and they said that yeah well they'll 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 provide the the debt if um if if Raddick doesn't isn't CEO um, going forward? <laughs> okay. I have the state of my business partner uh, and majority shareholder. You need to tell these guys that that's okay. You're all right with that because we needed to be able to tell the other banker that we have a deal, and yep. and um, we need you to improve it. And we didn't tell them about the part that I was gone on that new deal. Um, and and um, and thankfully they did, and and they were really excited by me and my team's lead and supported us. All the way through. That's a really interesting perspective. I appreciate you sharing that. It's it's once again a couple of takeaways out of that is this this concept of deal fatigue, right? And and deal fatigue is not just tired of the process. Sometimes it's you've been working with other people, and whether it's an external banker or it's sometimes it's the other party or wherever it's like you can just get frustrated dealing with people in a scenario that just is maybe not moving as quickly as what everyone wants. Um, so I think that's that's one big takeaway is understanding deal fatigue and how it impacts you. Um, one thing I would like to ask, though, which which I think is going to be super relevant to to people listening, is is this question of who do we involve in our internal team? You know, like who, who are we going to include in this process? Because I, I think everyone's worried about confidentiality and things getting out, and will staff leave or will customers leave, and all that sort of stuff. So. It, it's probably one of the the big topics I find people asking me a lot of questions about. So, what 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 sort of approach did you guys take? We set up a deal team, and and so that that team were incentivized to get a deal done. It was three or four people in our business, and that that was the they were the only people that knew about the deal. They were the only people working on the deal, and um, and that really worked really well for us. It was an important. Thing and because our core business was growing so rapidly, we needed all hands on deck. And yes, they weren't just on the deal, but they were the ones that were ring fenced and were aware of the process and were hands on. And the other thing we did too was down the path was really set up all of our reporting. So it was, you know, we'd always talk about being a VIPO standard for that. As soon as we started that sell process, we wanted to make sure that all our reporting, all of our books, all of Everything we did was of an IPO standard, uh, and and we didn't need to be doing that, but we just knew that it would hold us in the best of stead for any diligence, any structure, and also making sure that it was really relevant to operating the business and it was used. So all reporting was alive and and kind of brought to life, and and the narrative around actions and outcomes and and you know board presentations on certain areas of the business all. All were really relevant and kept in a data room that we were building over a long period of time. Yeah, no, that's that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, 
as the CEO, how did you find that sort of tension um, in, in terms of the, the pressure on your own bandwidth from focusing on the deal? And, and obviously, as you said, you know, the longer the deal, the more it sort of tends to drain from you. But how did you find the pressure with managing the deal, but also having to manage the ongoing business and keeping the numbers moving in the right direction? And, you know, worst thing I've always seen in a deal is that we get halfway through in the numbers tank, um, you know, the sales or whatever it is. So how did you find sort of having to juggle those two priorities? We went through all of that, <laughs> numbers <laughs> tanking and, and things changing and, and momentum shifting and, and, um, and then, you know, it, me being pulled from pillar to post. Um, I, and I think that that's where you land on having a deal team, on having the right bankers around you who believe in the path forward. So they've taken the time to, to get the messages of your business and, and can fundamentally speak as well about the business as you do. Um, and, and, yeah, at the time when you're getting asked all these questions, you go, why are they asking you all these questions? They're actually really good questions because they're educating themselves on your business so they can talk as advocates for your business and help you sell your business. So that time was time well spent and that change of banking um, support really made a big difference for us. It, it just felt like I, mean, I had a whole lot less pressure. They were like, get on with running the business. We will ask you for updating of reporting. We've got our deal team. And, yes, we'll utilise you when we need to talk to clients and so forth, but we'll do a lot of the small talk or warming up that's required and, and we also know your business pretty intimately. They, that we invited a representative from the group on, onto our board and we treated them like a board member even though they are just an observer. Um, but we wanted them to be up to date with our business, to know it intimately. So, you know, they could do a lot of that work for us in, in kind of in the area they know well. Yeah, that's a really interesting approach. It's, you know, that sort of embedding into the business to get get that sort of real feel for it. It's, um, I, I think there's nothing like being able to, you know, in your words, be able to speak of the business as if it's their own, you know. And, um, and I think, you know, with that comes a sort of level of passion and pride about it too, right? It's... Um, and I think that that would no doubt shine through to the buyers. So, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so you came in as a, as an employee. So did you end up? Were you did you have shares in the company by the time it exited? Yeah, so I, I slowly bought um, shares over you know a, a ten year period, and and yeah, I, I ended up with close to fifteen percent of the business. I had I had about fifteen odd million dollars worth of debt. And, and at one stage, a couple of years before we did the deal, or so about nine months before we did the deal, I should say, uh, we had a valuation done on the business. It was $100 million and um, we had 70 mil debt and 30 mil would have come out. And so for my 15%, I would have been well underwater. Our other shareholders had no debt against their shares. It was quite tempting for them. But we managed to push one more push forward and, and got an extraordinary result. So, Yeah, that's awesome. So but what did the business ultimately sell for? The first tranche was one point six seven billion, and the second tranche was two. Wow, wow, that's amazing! Yeah, At, um, and and the who were the buyers? They were a group called Buyers Time. They're now called H and H Group, which was our goal of making people healthier and happier. Or, yep. uh, you know, uh, uh, we we used to have a day called H and H Day, or Health and Happiness Day, that people would earn an extra day off each month. So they really liked H and H, and so now they're called H and H Group. Uh, we were, we were actually quite significantly bigger than them by the time the transaction happened. Um, so they're listed in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, and and they're an infant formula, and they made premium infant formula 
um, out of Europe and they'd import it back into China. So they're the biggest Chinese-owned infant formula uh, business. Um, and, and yeah, they're actually a perfect partner. We were, we'd met them five years before that and, and um, started talking to them about doing a partnership deal in China and gee, it would have been a whole lot cheaper for them if they'd accepted that deal then. Um, <laughs> uh, and they said it just wasn't, the timing wasn't right. And, and we went over to the US and, and that's where we spent that $70 million worth of debt that we, we generated and learned a lot of lessons about what not to do in international growth. But that's paid us and, you know, sowed some amazing seeds in, in kind of reinforcing us as a global brand um, because we used global properties like Ellen DeGeneres and Nicole Kidman, the Australian Olympic team, to launch into the US but also then to hedge um, our, our, <clears throat> our risk in Australia with, with that audience that would resonate there. And, and then Nicole Kidman at the same time, she was the face of Amiga and, and Chanel and already very big in Asia. And so that started to get us some a massive knock-on in China and, and then China came back on the agenda as we became the biggest health brand in China. Yeah, yeah, amazing. A um, couple of things I'd, I'd love to pick on just there is that, which certainly interests me, um, the first being that they were smaller than you by the time they acquired you and so I, I find that interesting. It's it's usually not the case but it, but it certainly can have a big knock-on effect to um, culture and all sorts of things like that. Um, and, and speaking to culture, I think the second part, my, my second question is um, selling to an overseas entity, I find can be amazing, but it adds complexity. And, and, and in addition to that, selling to a listed company because there's different reporting requirements and compliance and all that sort of stuff. So do, do you feel that, it, obviously it sounds like you had a good relationship with this buyer, but did any of those elements add complexity to your deal? A hundred percent. I mean, it, it it is very difficult to trade in China as the number one player without a local partner. So for us, there was kind of no other uh, way to go about it other than getting a some kind of partnership going. Um, and and so that was really important. The other part of it, it was we ran an extensive process. We went globally. We went to Europe, US, China, throughout Asia to to talk to various organisations. Um, and and so that that was good for us to go through and just get a feel for who we could partner with, and it, it made us feel really good about the the part the entrepreneurial Chinese partner that we we, we were pretty focused on, um, and already had a relationship with, and and they had won best employer in China a number of times, and so we in 2015 when we sold the business won best employer, and we won it again in 2016. And so for us, culture was important. For them, culture was important. Yes, our version of culture compared to a Chinese company's version of culture is different, but the same notion, the hearts were in the same place. So that, that made us you know, feel a whole lot more comfortable about partnering with a group that put culture up as an important um, aspiration. Um, and so, yeah, so you try and find like synergies where not that aren't just financial, you try and find like goals and, and hence, you know, they, they took on H&H as their, 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 their company name um, and, and they really liked our values and, and how they resonated and, 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 and worked with our team and, and they were used to make decisions in, in our everyday, um, you know, conversations or meetings that we would have and, you know, culture became a way of, 
of kind of making ourselves feel comfortable about not being in the room when the decisions were being made. So, um, yeah, it's just as important a KPI um, is is how we're going against culture as, as as how we're going against our business plan from from our point of view. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so what was your journey after the, the deal was done? Where did you, ha- you know, what was your transa- transition like? When did you phase out? And, 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 yeah, how did you feel about that part of the process? Yeah, so 2015, we, we start with the, the new partner and, and I, you know, I, I was kind of, I was pretty spent by then. I was like, after we did the deal, I went home and, and I didn't celebrate. I just said, well, this is our way of celebrating, as I said to my beautiful wife, Helen, you know, she said, what do you want to do tonight? I said, oh, can you just make your chicken soup? And, and, and we, <laughs> we, we opened a bottle of Grange. So it was, that was pretty wild. <laughs> and, yeah, and yeah. <laughs> sort of went, whoa, that was just pretty major. And so I, I felt like I, I needed to reset myself. You know, I was all of a sudden a director of a public company and, and representing a, a, a portion of the business that's now the biggest part of that publicly listed business. And, and so I, I had no doubt that things weren't going to slow down. <laughs> and, and so really I, I tried to make it work initially and, and tried to kind of think about whether it was for me, but it quickly became clear that the business had outgrown me and I kind of knew that going into the, the sale. That's what I'd come to terms with it probably the last year or two. That I was on a plane three, three weeks of every four in a month and, and so it wasn't a sustainable lifestyle for me. And, and business required that of its CEO. So it was pretty easy for me to see very clearly that the 30% I had left in the business, I needed to just focus on getting that out whilst I had some level of control as, as the CEO of the business and, and, and managing that in a way that was, you know, fair for all parties. And, and yeah, we, we got a result and, and, and you know, that, that's how... I formed a really close relationship with our banker Adam Gregory um, from Goldman Sachs, and and we 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 just found ourselves really aligned on a number of issues and seen the whites of each other's eyes um, through the the thick and thin as the deal uh, progressed over a number of years, and and we just felt like that there was just a similar value structure that we could build a, an exciting um, business. Um, uh, or, or investment group around, and and so yeah, Adam and I partnered up to create Light Warrior, which is what my wife said to me when she first fell in love with me. She said, "You're my Light Warrior." I thought that was pretty cool, so we kept it and we we named our investment group that. Um, and and so yeah, we 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 invest in in businesses that that aim, you know have purpose and and are conscious in the way they go about um, doing business. Yeah, nice, nice. Um, I'd love to jump into Light Warrior in a little bit to, um, as well, but I, I, I have one little kind of final half observation, half question, but I love that you came home and asked for chicken soup. I just, it's it's one thing, you know, for those listening, you, you know, it's, it seems to be a common experience for a lot of people out there that when they finally get through their deal, they often just feel so damn exhausted. They don't even feel like celebrating. It's just like, oh, I'm just so glad it's over. And to me, the, the chicken soup is like the medicine for the soul, right? Like it's just I just need a little bit of like a bit of love and a bit of, you know, Correct. something calm and not too over the top. And so I totally appreciate that. Um, out of interest, did you, in the end, did you get some kind of a trophy reward? Did you buy something to acknowledge the, the deal? You know, was there something like that for you? 
Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, I, my father, he he um, bought a Ferrari four-seater um, when I was born uh, and, and so he got it from the factory in Italy and he was living in Europe at the time. And, and so I'd always dreamed that when I could afford it, that that's what I would do. So, um, yeah, that's what I did. I went and bought a, a Ferrari that would fit a six-foot-four person, which is a four-seater as well. <laughs> <laughs> very nice, very yeah. nice. Well, congratulations. Obviously, we have a very, very long journey and well-deserved well uh, reward in the end. So, yeah, congrats. Um so, so tell us quickly. I mean, we've got we've got a few minutes here, but I, I'm keen to understand a bit more about Light Warrior and you know, what are the sort of companies you guys invest in. Yeah, so we we used to do a whole lot of investments, and and so we're we're down to about seven or eight now, but we we had over 10, 15 at one stage, and <clears throat> and so that was that was when we you know I, I was kind of worried about the transition from working as hard as I was to, you know, slowing down and, and I just felt like that idle hands wouldn't be, you know, the best thing for me after what I'd gone through. So yeah. um, we, we did a lot of investment. We are on a lot of boards. <laughs> I think I was on 14 at one stage, which is just Oh, my crazy. goodness. <laughs> um, and, and, and we owned like 10 to 15, maximum 20% of a business and, and we just found ourselves working as hard as someone that was owning 50%. Um, yes. Anyone else around the table uh, as investors? You know, obviously we had a management team in each of those businesses, but we'd be supporting them really heavily with support services and and LIP and so forth. And we just went, this is just, you know, this just doesn't feel right, and and we feel pretty fried because you you're going in from one one set of business issues and people stuff that's going on to going okay got that onto the next one. Yeah, the nuts and bolts of business is, can be pretty similar between them, but there's a whole story and narrative that goes with each, you know, business and why and where it's at. And and so it's just exhausting going from one thing to the next. Um, and so, yeah, we, it just became really clear that we, we needed to invest owning over 50% of a business going forward. And if we were to invest in, you know, something smaller than that, it would be a strategic partnership where they were either supply chain or customer facing um, and optimizing the majority um, led businesses that we were in and so we've simplified that to just wellness and funds management and so we we our wellness play is is wonderlust uh, which is a is a all plant-based herbals business which is pre-covid was the largest yoga festival in the world over 50 shows uh, we're starting to rebuild that, and I see that as the marketing activation where we sell tickets for those events and brings to life a deeper connection with our, our customer and, and and what our products do, and 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 you know more authentically connect beyond the, the kind of the celebrity model that we Swiss was so successful in doing. Um, so that's that one, and and I needed to make sure I wasn't going back to retailers with something that was just Swiss 2.0. This is something completely new, and in fact, doesn't directly compete with Swiss. Um, so that's that, um, and then then we've got our um, funds management business, which is conscious investment management. So we, we, I think we're the largest impact fund in the country, um, you know, which which has over three hundred million in management with a, a, a really strong trajectory of, of doubling that over the next three to four years. And and yeah, we manage other people's money in investments such as um, disability housing, social housing, uh, which is affordable housing. We've done one of the first partnerships with government. Um, that, that that have taken place between commercial 
and and gov and and so that's that's been great we do solar we do the land regen work carbon credits and all sorts so again just feels fits in with that like bringing light to the world purpose you know showing people can can bring the best out of themselves through wellness but also uh through through um, caring for and, and and looking after those in society and the planet around us so it fits in really well with our purpose and and you know then there's a there's a tumble of businesses that that sit along those businesses that are kind of relevant that we're, we're invested in um, that that help us do what we do um, yeah, better. Nice. Yeah, and and are you do you still um, with those funds? Are you still looking at other potential investment opportunities? Uh, look, I, I think only in the, the kind of the supplements or the impact space where we can do more of what we're currently doing. Um, and, and that's just because that's what we've got capacity for. And, and you, you know, we, we have got difficult times ahead. We want to maintain as much liquidity as we can for, for our big plays and, and make sure they get, get through these, these, you know, difficult times that we're all facing at the moment. Yeah. Um, I've, I've got to pick up on that statement a little bit. I mean, what's your, um, you know, we're, here, we're halfway through, uh, 2023. I mean, what, what's your view on the market over the next sort of, you know, year or so? Well, the, it, it, you know, there are many industries that are in recession, might not be the whole country, but, you know, many industries that are in recession and, and we will see um, the, the, the complications and the consequences for that happening. But there's so much opportunity that happens as a result of that. And, and our fastest growing period through, uh, in, through my time at Swiss was through the GFC. You know, advertising became really cheap because everyone was pulling back on it and we went harder and doubled down. And as a result of that, it was a megaphone for moving our business forward. So, and consumer demand never dropped off through that period. It was more wholesale ranging why they bought money getting more difficult to access so it's just it, it kind of the 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 outcomes of what we're about to go through they they, they can come up in many facets like we've seen infl- inflation and then supply chain and all these sorts of things there's always a surprise involved so being ready for it but also remain focused on on the opportunity and you know recession you know, means people are still spending a lot of money. It's just a slightly down on the year before <laughs> as a total. So there's still plenty of opportunity out there. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? It's amazing how much like uh, uh, this minute drop in a, in a number can project so much sentiment and change the way people feel and behave. It's, um, it's kind of an interesting one. But uh, I guess what I'm picking up on what you, you're saying here is, um, you know, to steal a, a phrase from Warren Buffett is that, you know, when everyone's be when everyone's fearful, be greedy, and when everyone's greedy, be fearful, right? Like, be be counterintuitive with the market. And you know, I think if if people are talking recession and talking things down, well, that can often be a great time to strike and and find good opportunities. So, um, you know, I think I think that's something that all of our audiences, business owners, um, can probably appreciate. So, um, so yeah, that's cool. Um, Radek, are you happy? Um, I, I do have one last question, but I, before I get to that, are you happy for people to reach out and connect with you um, if people had questions or? Yep, got a LinkedIn site, so no issue at all. Yeah, cool. We'll we'll put that LinkedIn site in the uh, in the notes, and as we often say on this show, please, if you're reaching out, just just put a little note in there, perhaps say that you you've heard Radek on the on the podcast, so he knows where you're coming from and maybe why you're reaching out. Um, it's um, we are all people at the end of these uh, pieces of technology. So, um, right before we finish up, I just have one last question. I mean, having had the journey you've had, and no doubt many ups and downs, um, how would you define success for yourself these days? 
Yeah, I, I think it's twofold. For me, I feel like that uh, the biggest moments that I felt greatest satisfaction from in, in my career is when I've had partners of people come to me that, that are working with me, come and tell me how much of a changed person they are as a result of working in, in our organisation. And so for me that that is how I gauge success is, is your impact on society. I just feel like we're at a really important time, you know, this, this balance of capitalism, capitalism and democracy and, and the alternate being authoritarian capitalism is is kind of there is a competition on and and if we don't tell the great stories of, of what our society does we we may quickly lose it and and so i think it's really really important if we're in a position of influence we're a business leader we provide for the most inspiring purpose-driven workplace that we possibly can to do our bit to have people happy happy and have their partners and families smiling about uh, the space that 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 individual is is in as a result of working with great leadership. Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it, and no, I couldn't agree more. So, um, mate, I really appreciate you coming on the show and and sharing your story. I've I've found it fascinating. I'm sure our listeners will as well. So, yeah, you've been really gracious. So, appreciate your time. Thank you, Simon. It's been great to catch up. Cheers. And thank you all for listening to another episode of the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Um, Please join us again for next week and keep your ears and eyes open. We'll be making some announcements soon about the Buy, Grow, Sell Summit, which will be our big annual online event for business owners who want to learn more about how to acquire, scale and exit companies. Um, It will be held in September this year. There will be recordings and all the rest, but we'd love to have you come along for that as well. So stay tuned. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Wherever you are on your business journey, it's worth understanding what is driving value into your business and what could be holding you back. For more information, speak to the team at Exit Advisory Group by going to exitadvisory.com.au or send an email to ask at exitadvisory.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.